Welcome to Social Discasting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I am Brandon, aka Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is a Canadian singer and a songwriter, and I dare say you can just call him a musician, who has released five studio LPs and a number of EPs. He scored feature films like Hector in the Search for Happiness and television shows like Hilda. He's the co-founder of Side Door, a marketplace platform connecting, that's a lot of plus, connecting artists with alternative venue spaces for in-person and online shows. And most recently, he released the fantastic single, Fire Escape, along with the accompanying delightful music video. Not to mention, he's won two Juno Awards and thinks The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is the greatest video game ever made. Please welcome <laughs> Dan Mangan. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure. When I saw your post, not to deviate too much from the show, but when I saw uh, your post about Breath of the Wild, I was pretty delighted by that because I was like, yes, this game is incredible. Thank you. It really is. I, I mean, I, you know, I gamed enough as oh jesus my kids are coming out down here one second okay hey i'm i'm in the middle of recording something you can't come down here oh oh oh, 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 oh. no 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 the answer is no go i'll see you guys later can you close the door please <laughs> i said breath of the wild and they just it was like I a know, dog whistle they knew to come yeah <laughs> um i mean breath of the wild is just remarkable. I, I I played several Zelda incarnations over the years. You know, yeah. a child of the '80s. I played the original one on the original NES, and and then you know, uh, what is it, um, a Link Through Time or whatever. In, yeah, and uh, Ocarina of Time was like an event for me. I remember when it came out. Yeah, and uh, and so, anyways, I you know, and then there was like a big dark period where I, I was too busy, you know, uh, touring, and I just didn't really play video games for like 15 or more years and then um once my my kids were old enough to have a nintendo switch and it was right in the pandemic and their birthday parties were being canceled and it was like god we really got to go over and above on these birthday gifts because the you know we're so sad that we had to cancel all their parties and stuff yeah. and uh so we got a nintendo switch and um with it you know we purchased this zelda game i just can't even believe how good it is it is i can't either it's 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 like you know as an open world game the the fear of an open world game is that it's going to get boring but it just sort of never does you know it kind of blew my mind when i realized that anything you see in the game no matter how far in the background you can go to it and do mm. something there and something about that i'm like i don't know like it truly was like some kind of in my brain like a modern marvel of how did how does anybody do this? I it's, had no idea. It's sort of the game that you imagined when you were eight years old. Yes, like imagine yeah. like if there was a game where you could like drop a sword in the snow and come back like two years later and that sword <laughs> is still there, you know, like, yeah, um, it's just, I mean, it's just remarkable. It's, it's unlike anything else, but, um, you know, I, and I have the same feelings of like, how could anyone be smart enough? to create this, you know, and I know that it took a very big team of people, but even then, like, how could anyone be smart enough to lead a team to create it? You know, it's just, I can't imagine. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's moments like that where I realize it, it doesn't really take much, I guess, for me to marvel at something, the existence of something like that. But I also just have no concept, but I'm, I'm just happy it exists. Like I never would have known this could exist, mm -hmm. but thank you. And let me play it way too much. And I will. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's like, you know, obviously it's a business venture, right? Like they're making games, they sell games, they make a lot of money. Um, but that idea of something existing and being thankful for it is such a, that's such a, I mean, I love that. Like I, I love when I see like a video 
on YouTube or something where somebody has clearly spent like 20, 30 hours making something just completely absurd and yeah. with no purpose other than just enjoyment, you know? And um, I like, that's my favorite part of the internet. And that's also kind of like my favorite part of creating things is like the doing, right? It's like when you kind of just spend a bunch of time obsessing about some weird thing that maybe no one else in the whole world will ever enjoy. That's magic. Like, that's really cool. Like that's getting lost in something, you know, in a way that is different than getting lost in social media or on your phone or something like that. Like just being obsessive about something that maybe you're the only one who cares about, I think is so special. Yeah. Just the idea too, that it's something you're creating truly to your point, like for the pure creativity factor of it and to know, wow, if, if quite literally one person likes that, that is a win. Mm-hmm. for me like even that and even that not that it even requires that but just like anything's a win at this point yeah i i sometimes play a game with myself before i'm getting on stage where i sort of like pretend i have amnesia and um i don't know who i am or any of the work i've done or like you know all of the hard slogging and teeth cutting that i've done in my life is sort of out the window and it's like i wake up in my dressing room and I'm like, oh, who am I? I don't know. But I know the songs. And someone's like, time to get on stage. And then I'm like, okay, I go on stage. And from that perspective, I'm not worried about like, oh, you know, do we sell enough tickets tonight? Um, do people like this? Or, or, you know, how is this moment going to support and build and grow my career? Like all of those thoughts are ridiculous and out of mind. And if I was in, truly in that sort of like childlike perspective of like, I would just go on stage and if there were four people there who like, you know, were singing along or, or even just listening, that would be amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, like I love trying to approach these very adult, you know, real world scenarios with that sort of child mind eye because it, it sort of spurs a creativity and also spontaneity and also gratitude. Like, yeah, you know, to, to be thankful that there are, 570 people in a theater rather than bummed out that you didn't sell all 700 tickets or something like that and you know like and in so many ways happiness and fulfillment is totally a choice like you know no matter where if you're you could be a multi-billionaire and think of a million things to be bummed out about or you know you could be um so I, I guess what I'm getting at is that like you have to make these little choices along the way to sort of be to like find bewilderment and excitement and enjoyment in simple things and um, and to try and approach it with that sort of gratitude mindset so that when you come out of it, you're like, ah, that was great. Instead of oh, that could have been better. You know? yeah. <laughs> you know? You're like, oh, I saw three empty seats. OK, that's a problem. You yeah. know, I, I can imagine, though, it's very you have to wear both of those hats of the obviously the creative side but also being business minded and i can imagine you think about the business minded side too much and it sucks the joy out of it prospectively to be mindful to like oh yeah this is all this is all a win this is so fun yeah, it certainly can i think that like the enjoyment or well, let's say like that the creativity the art side of it is one circle in a venn diagram and then you've got this other circle that is sort of like the business and the hustle and the career. Yeah. And the most successful and accomplished people are the ones who sort of like were able to overlap those in the most nuanced way. 
So, you know, if you think of like bands that have tons of critical acclaim, but also a lot of popular success, like Radiohead or Bjork or or Beck or something like that, or Arcade Fire or, you know, I don't know, Joni Mitchell, like there's an ability to sort of have ambition and be hungry and, you know, have a vision that you can clearly execute. And meanwhile, you know, also being able to create incredible art that becomes trend-setting popular culture for decades. Um, you know, that is like, that is a miracle. That is like a target within a... It's a bullseye within a bullseye within a bullseye. Yeah. And that's why so few people can do it. And, um, you know, it's, it's just... Uh, I, if you can go to the next town over and play to 50 people you've never met, like, that's incredible. You know, like that, like, like, think about it. Think about what had to happen for you to be able to do that. 50 people even went and like, you know, know who you are or like bought a ticket, got a babysitter, whatever. They're there, they're at your show. Um, I think that like, you know, trying to approach it with that mindset is so special because then every moment is a gift. You know, every show is a gift rather than a slog. Absolutely. You know, and I imagine it's really tough, like. I mean, for a multitude of reasons, but just to, um, when you make art that then has expectations to try to, if you make, if you have a giant album and then now, wow, I need to do a follow up. It seems like it's, mm-hmm. would be so much easier to lean into those yeah. than it is to then chart your own course again, which is what perspectively got you there in the first place, you know? Yeah. It's so tricky because if you create expectations in and around the art you're making, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment because either like, like it's almost a lose lose when you put lots of weight into your expectations because either it doesn't meet those expectations or you put all this thought into like how it can be successful. And then let's say it works and let's say hordes of people come, come clamoring over your way. There's going to be some part of you that's going to feel like, oh, these people are idiots because I tricked them and it worked, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, and I'm not I, real fans. Yeah, these aren't the these aren't the fans I want. I want the really, you know, critical fans who, you know, it's it, it's like you're setting your it, you're you're creating like a self fulfilling prophecy of doom, you know? It's like, yeah. whereas if you, but and, and all of this to say like that is a different thing than goal setting, you know? Like in your career, I think it's really important to have goals and things that you want to aspire to, but that can't affect the creativity. Like that can't affect, like if um, I feel like if you start mixing songs so that they could be better played on the radio or something that you are trying to pigeonhole it into something that is already working for other people. Yeah. Um, And that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And what you'd be best to do is to, you know, let that sense of discovery and excitement and creativity flow through every element of that process. And then at the end, you know, maybe it's a gamble because maybe now it doesn't sound like everything else, but if it's truly, truly wonderful, the people, like everyone will love it for not sounding it like everything else, you know? Yeah. And that's anytime you have a band just, you know, come out of nowhere and just, just take over the scene it's because they don't sound like everything else, yeah. you know, like a Nirvana or like a, I don't know, maybe Lizzo or something like Billie Eilish. Like I remember that with Arctic Monkeys. I was like, who is totally, this? Totally, totally. And everyone was like, oh my God, the, you know, the, I, 
but that you look good on the dance floor song. I think that was the one that kind of broke them, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was sort of like, in a sense, it was a throwback because it sounds like rock and roll. And we've been in this period of like not real rock. You know, we didn't have any guitar rock. But that at the same time, it was enthused, like imbued with this super exciting, new, youthful, like reckless abandon. Yeah. And um, and it, it's amazing because if you can kind of like picture in your mind's eye, like, you know, the sort of like um, like Nirvana playing in bloom on the, was it the Ed Sullivan sort of knockoff show or whatever? It's like, we got four young lads or three young lads with a <laughs> brand new sound. You know, yeah. it's always the excitement is around the new sound. And that new sound tends to be conjured through people trusting their gut, you know, not, not guessing at what other people might like. And um, it, it's the same thing as when you, when you like stumble into a performance in a club and you see someone on stage and they're just mind blowing. Like they're just amazing. And yeah. part of you thinks to yourself, God, I want to be like them. And so there's a part of you that goes like, Oh yeah, that's kind of cool how they wear their shirt. Like maybe I could, maybe I should wear my shirt like that. And so part of you sort of like goes, wow, what they're doing is so special. I want to be like them. But truly, the thing that is making them special is that they have tapped into their truest form of self and are, you know, kind of giving you something honest and authentic and, you know, a sort of like a, they, they've, they've knocked down all the walls and of bits of armor between them and you. And that's why they're so pervasive. And so the thing that will make you pervasive is tapping into you and the thing that is you, not the thing that is a, you know, if they were copying someone else, then you wouldn't be as interested in them. So, um, you know, all of it all sounds so cliche, you know, but at the same time, it's completely true that like, you know, uh, the thing that is most magnetic, the thing that is coolest about people is authenticity and and if 100%. you're if you're not you know if you're kind of leaning into the rock star thing like you're like acting like you're cool or something like that that's how you end up you know doing heroin in the like the janitor closet at madison square gardens you know it's like because if you if you find success creating a myth and it doesn't feel like it's built on anything real or true or authentic then you will hate your fans <laughs> yeah you'll be like yeah. why do you like this clearly it's garbage and i tricked you all yeah don't yeah just the idea of having a resentful relationship with popularity like that seems like what a toxic awful thing like yeah it's like how do you like you have to go even further to the thing you were avoiding actively avoiding in the first place to undo all that which is like wow i should have done this in the first place totally and then you get like you know kind of like famous popular rock stars or something like trying to attach themselves to like cool up and comers to try and recapture that thing that they loved so much when they were a teenager before they let the business get in their head and, you know, started conjuring up a, a myth or something like that um, because it felt true and it felt real. And um, I think that like on it, like coolness is so ethereal right like it's yeah. like uh, when, when it's so relative what's cool to you is totally lame to somebody else and and so it's like trying to climb this ladder that's made out of fog and every rung is uncertain and it, it like you know and there's there's no end in sight you can keep climbing and climbing and climbing forever um and um 
at every stage you feel uncertain of what's going on and the people who say to you oh you're so cool you're like well it's not it's not very cool to say that clearly you don't know what cool is <laughs> but also like oh you think there's a ladder there that's not very cool <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but then honesty is far more black and white to me like i know when i'm i like i, I know if i'm at a party and i'm sort of like you know kind of putting on a bit of a part like i don't i know when i'm being an idiot like i know yeah. when i'm being slightly dishonest or being a little bit you know disingenuous or something like that um and so i think that that for me like that's a really clear indicator of whether or not i'm achieving what i desire to achieve you know if my goal was to be cool and be admired i don't think there's any success that would be that would create any kind of contentment whereas if I feel like at the end of a show or if throughout the recording of a song or writing of a song, I have achieved, you know, uh, some sort of like special nuanced um, presentation of, of a hidden truth of existence or something, then at the end of it, I, I know that I've done my job. And whether or not it reaches four people or four million people or, you know, whatever, um, that's not... I mean, obviously there's things I can do to, to try and proliferate my career and everything, but like, it's not really for me to say it's sometimes that stuff is so zeitgeist based and like perfect storm lightning in a bottle kind of stuff. And it's really hard to manufacture that and, and, you know, reverse engineer it. And so the best you can do is sort of make something that you think is true and good and just hope, yeah, you know, uh, that it will find an audience. It also seems like, to your point, that with so many hit songs, it feels inexplicable, mm -hmm. the success. Like, you hear, like, um, like three years ago, I think, uh, Portugal the Man had a song out. Yeah. And I love that band. I love their music. And they had great a song, song out. Great song. It's a great song. Yeah. And they talk about, like, oh, yeah, we, we wrote that in two weeks from start to finish, and we recorded, and it just came out. And then you hear that, and it's like, just something happened. Something clicked. Yeah. Yeah. And... Obviously, there are so many people in the world, but we just we are more aware than ever, like with the internet, of all of these people. And it's like good mm -hmm. luck trying to figure out something that's going to click like that. You know, to to consciously do it, I can't imagine. Yeah, and I think that in the old music industry, you know, back in the '90s or whatever, it was it was all about like domination. You know, it was like about being that band that could fill the arenas, and every part of the the industry sort of like tried to push artists up the chain and treat them like stars until they actually were stars. And the, the machine was, you know, it was sort of like a winner take most kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, and these days it's pretty much impossible to capture everyone's attention, you know, like even artists like Billie Eilish or Lizzo or whatever, like there's going to be billions of people who've like never heard of them, you know? Yeah. And, um, that's just how it is. Like the world is so saturated. It's so easy to be online and therefore, you know, it's impossible to keep anyone's attention online for more than a few seconds. Things are moving so quickly. There's new content in your face all day long. You know, even the artists that you love, you know, that are your favorite bands, you might listen to the, that their new record a couple times and then kind of forget about it for a while, you know, because there's just so many things... It used to be that every time you got in your car, oh, there's the record I bought. Let's yeah. listen to it again, you know? And then on the 39th listen, you're like, oh my God, the guitar tone on track nine is insane. 
And at this point, you know, you don't have that same sort of like beholden to limitation. Any of every time you get in your car, you can listen to any podcast and you can any live recording of any show on YouTube, you know, like, like there's just endless things that you can be fulfilling, you know, kind of like entertaining yourself with. Um, so it's really, really hard to poke through. And I think that, you know, it now the model is no longer about domination, but like about trying to get as much quality as possible with those sort of true fans, you know, and yeah. as much sort of like, um, ongoing dialogue and that sort of like direct to fan sort of thing is very much now what a lot of like artists are, are trying to facilitate because it, it might be the only way that they can make a living is to, you know, get, get lots out of a fewer amount of people. And is that, you know, I guess from not to be like too crass about a money perspective, but is that what touring does at this point? Because it's, you know, with the streaming of it all, it's harder to get it's, the sales aren't what anything close to what they used to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, this is very of this moment, you know, and, and podcasts live forever online. So I, this, but we are in this moment, kind of like in the dog days of the pandemic. And um, it's really hard to sell tickets right now. And yeah. it used to be that you went on tour, if you if you already had a fan base, you know, you go on tour for the first couple of years, and you lose money, you lose money, you lose money, or you barely break even or whatever. I mean, it's the the only way it works is if you're willing to do it for free, basically. Um, and then if it works and you get lucky and you get some breaks, you know, bam. Um, and let's say you have a fan base touring was generally how you would make money in the new era because yeah, record sales are down, blah, blah, blah. But in this moment right now, selling tickets is hard. You know, people haven't been to a baseball game in two years. People yeah. haven't been to the movies in two years or whatever. So there, there's so much, and every artist in the world is trying to tour right now. So there's so much competition for people's dollars, for their time, for their ears that, you know, I think sales across the board um, in every element except for that top 1%, you know, the the Drakes and the, you know, the people who are selling 25,000 tickets a night, they're fine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for the sort of like for the rest of us, it's it's harder than ever to kind of fill a, a, a house. But... The people who are there have never been more engaged and like they're leaning forward. They're in, you don't have to win anybody. Like they're excited. They've been, you know, waiting for this concert for years. So there's, there's sort of like a specialness to that as well. And, um, touring's hard. I mean, I could speak to, to my own experience just recently. Uh, you know, we did a tour, six out of nine people on the bus got COVID Wow. They were isolating in various cities, um, in you know, racking up hotel bills, you know, on my on my dime, yeah, uh, because they have to isolate in this city for five days or whatever, you know, and then they're here, and then these people are here, and um, and of course, you know, I brought them on tour. I've got to pay for it, you know, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But at the end of the tour, you know, you kind of you you look at the ins and the outs of the money, and you know, like, well, did I just lose money on a tour? Like I thought I was supposed to make money on tour, you know. And um, it's just gas is more expensive. Everything's more expensive. Uh, hotels, accommodations, everything's more expensive. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of artists right now going like, is it even worthwhile to tour? Is it worth my time? Is it worth, you know, is, is it too risky? And so I think that a lot of people are 
trying to, you know, engage in many new models of like how they can make a living staying at home, you know, working on TikToks. And um, I think that I, I don't, I don't want to be down on, on that too much because I think that that's just part of the ebb and flow and natural, natural change of the industry. Yeah. And maybe I'm just getting old. So I put too much weight into the live show and maybe that's, you know, maybe it's an old idea is that like the live show is where it's at. But for me, that's, that's my church, you know, like that's, that's where I feel connected to people and connected to any kind of sort of like, you know, spiritual unity. That's where I tap in. That's where I feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose in this planet. That's where I feel in my skin and spontaneous. And, and that's where I feel a lot of joy. And so, you know, for me, it's important to keep doing it and figuring out ways to make it viable, you know, if the economics are really tough. It's funny you say that, though, because that's what I think about when I think about like going to a live show that, you know, as a non-religious person, that's like the closest thing I get to that, I think, mm -hmm. because I just love the fact that as a concert goer, you walk into a venue, it's all of these people who do not know each other, like you have your clicks and you have all that, everybody's milling around. And then for like a particularly great show, by the end of it, everybody is on the complete same wavelength. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah. it's such a beautiful thing. I love it. It's all the benefits of religion, but without the dogma and the baggage. And, you yes. know, as, you, as you're walking out, nobody's asking you to hate someone, you know? like Yes, it is pure, like, <laughs> pure love, energy, and joy. It's all yeah. the best things. Well, it's like you go to a show, you go to a Slayer concert, everyone's wearing a Slayer t-shirt. Like, you're with your tribe, like, you're with your people, you know? Yeah. And they don't all look like you, or they don't, you know, like, they can, they can be from all these different walks of life, but they've all tapped into a similar vein of, of, of interest in one particular band or something. And, um, and it's honestly like, I think that at the deepest root, you know, it's like some Darwinian stuff going on, but like at the core, all we want is to feel understood and feel heard and that we, we desire that connection. And like, even love is just one way to get to that connection. You know, like mm -hmm. it's not even love that we desire, it's connection that we desire and love creates connection. And I think that that's why when you leave a great show, right? Like you leave a concert and you, you, you want to do stuff. Like you want to write, write a poem and climb a tree and like, you know, go for a hike and bake a cake and call your mom and like, you know, go to Paris and make out with someone. Like when you leave a great show, you're filled with like life force and juice and soul fuel, you know, yeah. because your tank has sort of been topped up having been part of a whole that is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think it's foolish to think that religion could have the monopoly on that feeling, you know? Yeah. Because it's, it's like, you can't, it's a pure energy that's not being co-opted by, by bad actors. It's really is just this untapped thing that, you, like you said, you fill yourself up with it and you go out and then the world is then suddenly filled with possibilities. And it, it's also, I mean, for the most part, it's not dangerous. Like, I bet there are people who feel that sense of community at a Trump rally, you know? Yeah. And they're getting riled up and they're just, oh, isn't this great? We all hate the same people, you know? Like, <laughs> um, and that's yeah. dangerous. Like, that's... Yeah, that's Nazi stuff. Like, um, yeah, you know, that's where like, that's where like feeling anything's possible gets really, really bad and scary. Exactly, exactly, and and that sense of like, yeah, we're the best, and everyone who's not us is the worst, and we hate them, and you know, we're gonna crush them. It's like um, that sort of 
raw, raw stuff is, is really dangerous. And from my perspective, um, going to a great musical experience, a concert or whatever, is the opposite. You leave feeling empathy. Like if you leave yeah. feeling like you want the world to be the best place it can be, and that's not by crushing people who are not like you. You know, that is by embracing everyone possible. And um, um, I, I, I think that art has a really powerful way to make people it's sort of like you can you, you know i've said this before but like you send your smoke signal up in the air and you go i don't know how well you guys feel but this is how i feel mm -hmm. and then a million miles away somebody sees your smoke signal and they go oh my god i feel the same way i haven't heard it articulated just so but yeah like yeah okay i'm hearing you and and i feel the same way and now both sides are sort of like cosmically less alone for having participated in this exchange and when you feel less alone, you feel kinder. Like you, you know, you feel lighter. You feel like you could extend yourself uh, in kindness to someone else and pass that smile, pass that positive energy forward, pay it forward. Um, and so ideally you should leave a concert and, and want, you know, want to, I love the idea of like leaving a concert and then like, you know, the panhandler that you didn't pay attention to on the way into the venue, yeah. you buy him a sandwich on the way out. You know, it's like yeah. you've, you've had this thing. You feel good. You feel complete in who you are. You feel settled in your skin. You love yourself. You love the people around you. You've just experienced something special. God, I want to, I want to just share this feeling, you know? Yeah. It's like sometimes if, if you don't feel understood enough and then suddenly you do, you realize how important it is for other people to feel that way too. Mm -hmm. and how beautiful that is and how good it feels and then to your point you want to pass that on to somebody else and then you know that's <laughs> i mean you know not to put too fine a point on it, but that's how things change sure is by that by that happening and that being passed on to person to person to person and then you realize the possibilities of things and you know whatever that may be and when you witness someone in in the midst of like a truly kind act like you know, you're watching like some upworthy video or something where somebody's like you know, there was that, that um, there was the viral thing the other day where there's like a, a little league baseball game. Yeah. And the, and the pitcher nailed the batter in the head and walked him, obviously. And um, so the, the the batter gets to first base and looks over at the pitching mound and notices that the, the pitcher's crying. Like he's just, I can't believe I just hit someone in the head with a baseball. And so, you know, the, the, the batter from the opposing team is over at the mound, consoling the pitcher, hugging the pitcher, saying, you're doing great. Just keep throwing strikes. You're going to get through this, you know. And it's so pure because they're kids. And, you know, it's also pure because they weren't filming it themselves with their iPhones or something trying to show how nice they are or something yeah. like that. It was just like overseen and just happened that one of the coaches had like a hot mic on their lapel. So they heard their conversation, you know, like, and so when you witness an act of kindness, of empathy, like your first reaction is like, God, I want, I want to be more like that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, that is the artist's job is to make, make people feel that way. Like if an artist, an artist's job is to put down their armor first, you know? You're, you you put down all your baggage and all your armor and you sort of give people an authentic, honest representation of yourself through your, your creative process. And then everyone in the room goes, 
Oh, maybe I could do that too. You know, and now you've you've like there's like ripple effect of of authenticity and honesty and um and kindness. It's it's weird. I and I it's it's hard to connect the dots between honesty and kindness, but it's there. There's some weird, strange thing that when you feel understood and when you feel like you're living an authentic life, you just want to be kind to people. And I yeah. don't believe in altruism. I don't believe you know, I, I am <laughs> I have almost like a laughable reputation, particularly in the Canadian music industry of being like the nicest guy in the Canadian music industry. And as I've, people have quoted that to me so many times. I think it's so, it's so silly, but the funny thing is that I'm not doing it for anyone else's benefit. Like, yeah. you know, it is selfish. I am a really nice guy because it makes me happy. It like, you know, for me to be a, a, a nice, inviting, welcoming person who you know looks everyone in the eye at the merch table and you know like I, that 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 makes me happier i'm not doing it you know um for altruistic reasons i'm doing it selfishly and my <laughs> right, life, this is not one of my three acts of sainthood yeah this is you know i do get something out of it too exactly and it's a win for everybody and that's why i just i like you know i don't, don't I mean, to turn your podcast into yeah. a secular rant, but like, Please. that's why I get so frustrated at the idea of like, afterlife, heaven and hell. It's like, I'm going to be nice now, even though I don't really want to, yeah. so that in heaven, you know, I can sit around with lots of naked babes, because that's <laughs> what I really want, you know? And um, this idea of like, oh, I'm going to be nice for a big reward in the end. Like, like, heaven and hell exist right here on planet Earth. And they are in your mind. Yeah. You know, you can live through hell. You can live in heaven in your mind. It is all a choice. And waiting for the afterlife to reap the benefits of any perceived, you know, uh, fealty is a fool's game. It also reminds me, too, just the what we were talking about earlier about, like, um, trying to act in a way to meet the perception of expectations mm -hmm. because then you're just acting in a way like i'm acting the way this person i think is watching me would want me to in order to get an outcome in this case later on yeah sometime down the line i don't know it just um a life with regret just seems like a really unfulfilled one to me i also think about like you know let's say you're living your life trying to please you know some bearded dude living in a cloud watching you masturbate or something yeah you know what kind of person is that like what kind of person demands that you worship them <laughs> like, like i always bristle at the term god fearing i'm yeah. like yeah that that sounds awful yeah that's, like why would yeah. i why would i choose that that sounds like, terrible like, it sounds like a bully you know yeah. sounds like a narcissist sounds like a complete sociopath sounds like, like isn't this what a dictator is the... right exactly that's like <laughs> it sounds like an authoritarian like you know it does not sound like a benevolent spirit that god can smote you you know or like yeah i don't know it's just it's so insane to me to put so much stock into this thing that like if you just pivot your gaze five degrees you could you could you could take all of the good from your religion all of the stuff about taking care of lepers and feeding sex workers and sort of like you know truly taking care of people and kindness and you could just ignore all of that other baggage like 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 you want to get really into christ cool 
you know, Christ was like a radical anti-authoritarian um, person who just wanted everyone to be kind to each other and he was persecuted for it. And if he came back today and was reborn, he'd be living in a squat in Detroit and he'd be feeding sex workers and he would want nothing to do with white picket fence, you know, suburban America. That would be, you know, that, that would, that would be against everything that he believes in this sort of like monetizing, like God, God wanted me to be yeah. wealthy. Therefore it's fine that I'm pillaging the earth because God wants me to be wealthy. Like there's, it really grosses me out. <laughs> really? It, I find it disgusting. <laughs> It's it it is and and the sort of like the double truth of it this like but the thing is like let's say that there are some beautiful lessons in the Bible that's great there's also some beautiful lessons in Catcher in the Rye there's yeah. also some beautiful lessons in The Handmaid's Tale like take these beautiful lessons take these fables and apply them to your life and live a life that is good and kind and you will be a happy person it's a thing it's not the only thing. Exactly. And it, and you don't have to accept all of the horrible dogma BS with the good stuff. You can just take the good stuff, you know, without the shame and the guilt and, you know, you know, the patriarchy and only, you know, how many religions on the on the planet right now, like where only men can truly talk to God? Like, we're ridiculous. I've seen two babies come out of my wife. And, you know, if there, if if God had or has a gender of any kind, it is female. Like, yes. you know, it is like that. The miracle of watching a baby come out of someone is so spectacular and just life affirming and gobsmacking. And it's not male. It is <laughs> it is a woman doing that, and it is a female energy making that happen. So the idea, like, it you know, I mean, the patriarchy is like this. The, the, there's so much fear wrapped up in the power that women have, you know, because men want women more than women want men for the most part, you know, broad strokes here. Yeah. Um, and that makes men crazy and insecure. And so in order to sort of, you know, rationalize these feelings of being angry and insecure about the fact that they want women more, they, the men have to create these power systems that force women to need men to survive. And there's sort of like this, um, this, this misogyny and patriarchy is so deep in our, in our culture and so deep in like the sort of puritanical religious background of Western society. Um, and it's so, it's pathetic. Like, honestly, it, <laughs> it, like, it, it, it makes me like embarrassed for men in general when I see it so flagrant, flagrantly around. And, you know, it's, it's not like I'm completely void of it myself i'm not a perfect person and you know I, i'm also an animal and a mammal and you know all, but also you know. this sh this shit's in the firmament yes. like it's all going to get into us at some point it's all not about whether it does happen or the degree by which it does it's just unpacking all of that and coming to those conclusions and totally extricating yourself from it and you know like i i, which I try to teach my kids that like bravery isn't not being scared bravery is being scared and, you know, doing something anyways, even though it's scary. Yeah. And I think that, you know, enlightenment is not never having a racist thought. Enlightenment is having a slightly racist thought, thinking about it in your mind, going, oh, I wonder where that came from. Like, how do I, how was I conditioned to think that? Or, you know, you know, trying to find, trying to unpack it and articulate it and digest it so that you can deal with yourself and improve yourself. You know, it's like, it's not about purity. It's about 
um, accepting the impurity and working with it to try and better yourself. I think about that a lot about how, when I think about like, you know, a problem arises, whatever that may be. And then I think, oh, that's step one. <laughs> yeah, know, identifying yeah. it as step one. It's not like, oh, that's, that's not good. Anyway, no, this is step one. And then you go from there. And there's, I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago about like, uh, about going to therapy and how they don't always fully trust somebody who, when they come out of therapy, they're like, that was easy because mm. <laughs> it's a lot of work, you know? Mm, 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 mm. I mean, not to say you can't have like, obviously like great days of therapy by any stretch, but like life is hard, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really well, difficult. And anytime you have a great day, you're like, oh shit, I just figured out life. I'm awesome. You know? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to stay right in this zone of awesomeness for the rest of my life. But it's, you know, I say it's like a slippery fish. Like the second you try and grab on to that emotion or that feeling of, you know, completeness, it's gone. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, it's not about like sprinting to a finish line and then, and then chilling with a lemonade, you know, the fin the only true finish line is dying. And so, you know, it's, it's just like a process. It's like fishing, you know, you're, 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 you're fishing, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting for a great moment. You bring the fish up. Amazing. I'm blissed out. Look what I did. Life's great. And then you've got to throw the fish back, you know, and that catch and release, that's life. Like that's the process. And, you know, getting used to riding the ups and downs. I remember when I was like 20 and let's say I had like two or three months in a row of feeling really depressed and down and, you know, not, not liking myself or something. And it wasn't until I was like maybe 30 that I had the wherewithal to understand, or I, I had seen enough cycles of how my mind works to think, Oh, I'm just in a low. That's okay. Yeah. I'll just wait it out. You know, it might take a few more weeks, but I'll be fine. And it's like, you have to you have to have seen a few winters and summers before you can you know see the moment not for not as being the rest of your life but just being right now because you can kind of predict what's at, what's going to come next you know it helps a lot yeah to your point like um it makes me think about how i i both have a fear of failure but i also know i have to do a thing and not nail it and then i can get better at it very quickly Mm-hmm. So it's that weird duality, this contradiction almost of like, I do not like it, but I'm also getting, I'm way more comfortable with it than I've ever been. Because I know that's also part of the process. Totally. I mean, I we try and model, like, try and model that for our kids, you know, like anytime I make a mistake, some blunder or something, you know, oh, I was setting up the porch lights and I cut this cord too short and now it won't reach or something. I don't know. Like, you know, like I look for those moments now and I'll like, call over one of my kids and be like oh man i'm such look what i did this is so this is so silly now i gotta start all over again but then they go oh making a mistake is life you know like because yeah. i think that probably something i did too much of when they were really little is try and be a perfect dad all the time and like try and like you know show that i can do everything and i screw things up constantly and um and i would you know try and kind of present my most um, unscrewed up side of myself to, to, to my kids or whatever, you know, cause I want to, I want them to be, see like a strong dad. And then in recent years, I've kind of realized that actually it would probably be more helpful to them if they saw me screw up more often, you know, like that's what normalcy is, you know, cause it just happens, yeah. you know, cause like I get that tendency too to want to do that. Like I completely understand it, 
But I know for me that there was a time where my brain was just set to some form of like perfection is the only thing, but it's just not what that is at all. Mm. And then you beat yourself up about it, which then perpetuates less quote unquote perfection. And then Mm. you're just in this cycle of not even, it's not really failure, but you feel like it. And so when you get out of that and you realize, you know, you still want to do the best, but it's not the end of the world if you don't nail it. When you realize that's just part of the process, it's a very nice feeling. Yeah. Well, and also, if you spend, uh, you know, you'll never hit perfection. So if you spend all your time trying to hit this perfect mark and not hitting it, what you're going to do is spend 20 years doing the exact same thing, trying to perfect it, and you won't move on. Like, yeah. you know, I, I've felt that in songwriting where, like, there's a particular kind of song I've wanted to write and uh, a particular vibe or something like that. And then I write one and I'm like, yeah, it's, God, it's really close, really close. And then I don't know if I quite nailed it. So I'll write another. And you kind of get on this wavelength and you're like, oh, my God, I wrote a whole album of songs that are like so similar in structure or so similar. And you have to accept what they are and move on and then try something different. And because you can get so stuck, you can get so stuck almost nailing it over and over and over and over again. And then, like, now you become this, like, monoculture of a person, you know? Yeah. And also, though, like, sometimes the unexpected or unintended moments are the most interesting things about certain aspects of art. Yeah. The things that they never intended, you're like, oh, that was a nice, that was a happy accident. I would almost say not even sometimes, but, like, almost all the time, (laughs) you know? When I think about my own recorded works, like, there are songs that, I wrote a song. I knew it was a good song. I demoed the crap out of it. I wrote every little melody, all the little parts, everything. And then we get in the studio and then we record it and we kind of follow the demo. And we're like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Okay. Yeah. And we get to the end and we're like, yep, yeah, this is, this is good. This is a, an appropriate, uh, you know, document yeah. of this thing that I thought up. I've had other experiences in the studio where you come in with a figment of an idea and it, takes flight in the magic of the chemistry of that moment and becomes something that no one anticipated. And then you, you know, sort of like a, you know, almost like a, you screw it up one way or you, you catch something by accident, yada, yada, yada. And then you come out the other end and you're like, we just made fucking magic. That was incredible. And then every time you hear that song, you're like, oh, I just, it taps you back to the feeling of having made it and the excitement and it's because you stayed in discovery it's because you stayed in you know this idea this sort of mode where anything was possible rather than this mode where you're hoping that one specific thing might be possible yeah, that and, that um, openness breeds all kinds of organic moments i think to your point like i think people and again people innately respond to authenticity i think we crave it um at least i do like i I do not like fakeness. It really bothers me. Sure. Um, I, I always think about it with uh, even the best actor in the world. You watch them and you're like, man, they're incredible. But if there's a non-actor in a scene, you notice them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if they if they do a line delivery where it's just them being themselves, even the best actor in the world cannot replicate that authenticity. Right, right. I love that. Yeah, it's it's, it's going back to like the Little League game. You know, yeah. like, yeah, they were in front of a crowd. 
but this kid just made a call to do this nice thing. And, you know, like there's, there's sort of like this trend I've seen on TikTok and stuff where someone will drive up to the Starbucks window or something and they'll ask the person, you know, what do you do when you're not at work? And they'll be like, oh, I'm a singer or something. And you're like, oh, you know, and then, anyways, they'll like, They'll, they'll do with something where they'll just give somebody like an enormous tip. Like, yeah. you know, you bought a coffee and you tipped the barista $500 and then they, you know, they need it because they're trying to get into art school or whatever. And they are crying and it's really sweet. And then you put some like nice music to it. And now you've got like, you know, maybe this will go viral because it captures the pulls on the heartstrings. And that's great. Like, yes, give someone a big tip. Um, and yeah, even record it. I don't care. Like, you know, whatever, like it, it, there is some, there's something about it that is still kind and sweet. However, the fact that you're filming the whole thing and putting it online yeah, exactly. is like a little weird. And, um, and so that's like getting most of the way there. Um, but it's not getting all the way there, you know, like, like the truly, the true, like the, the true thing where you watch a film or you listen to a song and you're just transported 100% of the way to some, you know, astral place where you feel, you know, just understood or seeing something, some moment of pure, utter kindness that, you know, wasn't sort of happening with like a perceived external reward. Like those are the lifeblood. Like that is what that's that that's the shit that makes us want to carry on on this godforsaken rock you know absolutely it makes me think about um i saw a documentary about the making of dark side of the moon and you know it's this all-time great album this seminal classic and then you watch it and you're like oh this was a series of organic moments Hmm. of things that just the sound as much as anything like the sound found them as much as they found the sound and you're like oh that's what lasts that's why i love that that beatles documentary the peter jackson one you know incredible it's like it's he they could have cut it into like a narrative 90 minute piece that like kind of walked you through the thing but they didn't they let you sort of sit with the agonizing awkward silences and um it you know like all of those beatles songs that have become like wallpaper they're everywhere you know they're like ubiquitous tapestry that we've all kind of grown up in in and amongst um there's a sort of sense in hindsight that these people were geniuses, are geniuses, and that what they create is over and above what most people create, and that it's just magical and special, and it has always existed. Yesterday has just, you know, since I've been born, yesterday has always been a song. And um, and then you see, no, they're, they're people, like they're real people, and it almost, you almost give them more credit watching them go through the same struggles that I go through or that you go through in your creative life and coming out the other end with something so magnificent. Yeah. Because they didn't have a secret password. They didn't have like a silver bullet or a magical key that gets them to the promised land. They had to work just like everyone else. I remember seeing um, a Leonard Cohen interview where Leonard Cohen, somebody says, oh, it must be nice being Leonard Cohen. You know, you just wake up in the morning and write an amazing poem and there you go. He's like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I've spent every waking moment of my whole life trying to be better at this. And, you know, to suggest otherwise is sort of to cast aside all of that work, you know? Yeah. I always think about, you know, when you think about these whatever artists and how 
incredible they are. And what I think is, it takes so much work to make it look so easy. Because mm-hmm. like, yeah. we don't see that. We don't see the mundanity of it all. We just yeah. get, you know, for, for the most part, outside of like these errant documentaries that we don't see the basic. We just see, we get all of the win of the byproduct of all of that work. Yeah. I and it's, um, it's amazing. As a kid watching the Olympics with my mom and, uh, you know, Elvis Stoiko was doing like the, the first quad in the Olympics, like the first time somebody rotated four times and landed it. You he know, was very fun to watch. I remember him vividly. Totally. And, you know, it's not like I'm a big figure skater person, but like, I just remember watching it as a kid. Going, that looks easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, you just jump and spin, like, whatever, I could do that. And my mom started saying, well, the fact that it looks easy, you know, that's because that's how good they are, you know? Yeah. And um, it's, it's so true. Like when you see someone truly, and then you see Nina Simone sing or something, you're like, oh, singing's easy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. It so happens that, you know, she's one of the most incredible singers ever. Well, this one of one person really makes it seem really easy. Yeah. This unicorn of a human. Yeah. And exactly. that reminds me of Paul McCartney too, where and I, I know that you had um, had an interaction with him, which was incredible. The story's amazing. But I just love the fact that <laughs> he's a guy that just makes music. Yeah. Yeah. Music is really in his bones. I love yeah. that so much. It's so uncynical. Well, and even in that story, like I, I posted that story on online and got so many comments of people going like, isn't it cool? So, you know, in the story, Paul McCartney stumbles into our recording session in Los Angeles. And then I run into him an hour later and he gives me some advice on the song. He was thinking about the song that we were working on. And, um, and like, how cool is it that he's still approaching it? like a kid, like a teenager going like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if you did put a couple, like two sweet cellos and and a low piano drone on this song, you know? And in a way it's just so refreshing because this guy's seen every end of the business and, you know, one of the most adored figures in human history and, you know, praised as a genius from every angle. And, you know, his, his ability is just to, think with that sort of same sense of wonder you know um and you know he was he was thinking about my song and you know on the off chance that we bumped into each other again he could tell me and then we did bump into each other and then he told me i love it i love it it's so special i mean like i spent a lot of my life pondering his songs and the idea that i even you know occupied a portion of his brain for 45 minutes like that's incredible. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. what a, what a cool, what a cool occurrence. I was thinking about that earlier too, about both, you had told the story about that interaction, but then also the Dave Grohl interaction yeah. with regard to him possibly playing drums on a song for Hector and the search for happiness. And how that just the, the drums that he submitted or that he sent to you just didn't fit the sensibility of the music. But what I, what I was thinking was in terms of having those two interactions with two legends like that, those are arguably maybe the two best legends to have such an interaction with because mm-hmm. they are two people that just love music. Mm-hmm. And to to just not, you know, for whatever reasons, not go with that, those choices just because they didn't, you know, maybe just fit, yeah. that they're just like, okay, yeah, I just love music. You know, and some people might take that personally. You know, I've had a few interactions in my life with people that I admire beyond, you know, measure and in almost every single one, <clears throat> I've come away with this sort of juxtaposing feeling. One is that that was so special and so magical, and I'm so thankful. 
and B, uh, the other side of that coin is like, I didn't, uh, capitalize on this enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a morning at Colin Greenwood's home just outside of Oxford in England one time, um, and actually heard early mixes from in rainbows before that album came out. Holy shit. Um, That's incredible. It was just uh, Colin and myself and Ed O'Brien's dad, John O'Brien. And the, the, what got me into that room in that moment is like a whole other story, but it was like, you know, nine in the morning and I'm just sitting there sharing a coffee with Colin Greenwood at his kitchen table. And he's like, Oh, you know, I, um, you know, I, 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 we have a band meeting later and I haven't listened to these mixes. Do you mind if we listen to them together so I can get a sense of them or, you know, I'm like, uh, yeah, that's fine with me. (laughs) Um, and I had sold out of CDs the night before at the show in Oxford and I had nothing to give him. Like I had nothing, I had nothing to pass on or, and I didn't have the balls to like ask him for a, an email address or a phone number. And after spending an hour with this magical, amazing human being who has made many of my favorite albums ever, I had no way of like contacting him or, you know, sort of, I had no, I had no way to carry it forward. And maybe that's like the Canadian in me just feeling too sheepish to ask. But like, so, so walking away, there's a part of me that goes like, damn it, you know, like maybe, maybe I'd be further along in my career if I had a better ability to sort of capitalize on these moments. On the other hand, maybe that's kind of beautiful that I just had this moment and it was really special and I'll never forget it. And I get to, I get to put that in my pocket, you know? Yeah. And, uh, Maybe that's, maybe that's enough. And even the Dave Grohl thing, like, you know, I kind of say in my post about it, like if Dave Grohl had played drums on the song, we would have spent a day together in the studio. We probably would have had a meal, you know, maybe would have cracked a bunch of jokes, gotten to know each other a bit. Um, and maybe we'd be close. I don't know. Maybe not. But like, you know, maybe we'd be buddies. And, um, I, for a you know a whole variety of reasons, you could do a whole other podcast on why, but I, um, I was like, no, you know, we've already recorded the drums on that song. That's cool, man. And he's like, okay, no problem. And then he just he overdubbed some guitar on his own and sent them over, and, and you know that didn't really work either. And so it was like trying to, you know, trying to shoehorn this iconic musician into this song. And for better or for worse, I just had a really strong intention of what I was looking for on this song, and everything he was adding to it just doesn't it didn't seem right and um there is a small part of me that feels proud to have like valued the song more than a potential friendship with a rock god you know yeah um i'm still an idiot like there's no there's no (laughs) question you know like there's no perfect way to end that because it's just like again you, you can think about the what ifs regardless of how it goes it could still be best case scenario and you're like well but it could have gone this way too. But I don't know. I, I, this is easy for me to say because I am not a part of it. And I'd be in the same position you are, by the way. But that's a pretty nice way to be, to have both a really nice interaction with somebody who seems so cool and is so obviously otherworldly talented while also having the song the way you want it. And when I hear that song now, I love it. Like, you know, like I, I don't, like when it comes to the actual artifact, like the, the piece of work, I don't have regrets there. Like, I think the song, I think the recording's really cool and um, and interesting and unique. And I feel like if I had thrown his like stacks of Marshall guitar on it, 
I probably would hear that song with some regret, you know, and, um, and who knows, like, I, I, I guess, I, I don't know. I'm torn. I'm totally torn both ways because I feel like, oh man, like I, I, like the first rule of improv is yes. And, yeah. you know, and in that moment I said, no, and <laughs> no, but the, yeah. Like the most exciting moments in life tend to come when you say, yep, let's, you know, your buddy wants to go backpacking after high school and New Zealand. Let's do it. I can't afford it. I'm going to get a job. Let's make it happen. You know, like, yeah. um, it's sort of like, that's where the sort of spontaneous, awesome, amazing experiences tend to come from. And I'm sad that I said no in that moment, but I'm also proud that I stuck to an artistic vision. And so like many things in life, it is both happy and sad and exciting and remorseful, you know, like it is like very few things in life are purely one thing. I would say it's beautifully imperfect. It's beautifully imperfect. Well, that's a perfect way to end this. First of all, thank you again for doing this. This was so fun. No, my pleasure. I really nice enjoyed it. with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what all do you want to point people toward? I know you said a new song and video come out within the last month as of the time of this recording. It's very, it's great. Absolutely love it. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's new music. Um, a song called Fire Escape just came out. Uh, prior to that, a song called In Your Corner for Scott Hutchison. Yeah. Fright Rabbit, Fright and Rabbit. Um, there is new music coming out very soon. I would uh, ask people to, if they're remotely interested in hearing about, you know, when I'm coming to their town, if they text me, um, this is sort of like, I keep pointing people towards this. If you text me your town, uh, I will text you, I will ping you when I'm playing near you. And that is sort of like a thing that That's really techno cool. technology, technology now allows that, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have it. Um, this, is so, my, this is me thinking, wow, what will they think of next? Like Legend yeah, of Zelda all over again. Exactly. So <laughs> the number is 310-347-4597. 310-347-4597. If you text me at that number, I will text you uh, when we were playing near you. And... You know, it the hardest thing is to reach people that want to be reached. You know, people follow you on Instagram. It doesn't mean that they're going to see your posts. Um, so this is a way that, you know, for people who want to be supportive of me and, and my work, this is a way that um, we can sort of have a dialogue. And I, I everything that comes to this number, I, I get it. It comes to my inbox. So um, it takes me a while to dig it, dig through it sometimes. But I see everything and... Um, it's sort of the best way, at least in North America, for me to keep in touch with folks and let them know when, when we're coming to town. That's awesome. Okay, I'll include that with the episode itself, too, so people have awesome. that. Um, that. Thank you again for doing this. I'll stop saying that. I say it so many times, but no, I am no, deeply appreciative of your time. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, and actually, another way, that a place that I would direct people is to yes. Side Door. Okay. Um, uh, SideDoorAccess.com. Um, and you could just include that in the blurb or whatever. I don't know, whatever, whatever makes sense, but... Uh, yeah, appreciate it. It's all going in there. Thank you again. And as I now address the fourth, third, fourth wall, break the fourth audio wall, whatever that may be, thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Please take care. I say this a lot, but I really mean it. You know, lead with empathy and be kind to yourself. And um, yeah, thank you again. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks so much, Brandon. Thank you.